Eleanor Roosevelt once said, The purpose of life, after all, is to live it, to taste experience to the utmost, to reach out eagerly and without fear for newer and richer experiences. Photographer Corey Rich has lived that sentiment in his career as an adventure photographer. For decades, he not only photographed some of the world's most intense and dangerous sports activities, he has made them a way of life. The results are not just amazing photographs, but life experiences that can be found in his new book, Stories Behind the Images, Lessons from a Life in Adventure Photography. Now, some people would define him as a photographer and as a director, but they would be making a mistake thinking of those roles as just his job. I'm not sure I feel like I've ever worked a day in my life because I'm doing exactly what I love. I mean, I'm doing, I have, that's, that, you know, that's an exaggeration. There have been some days where I thought, I am working right now. <laughs> this sucks. I don't want to be here. This is hard. I'm tired. I'm, I'm not stimulated. This is not what I want to be doing, but I'm working. But I'll say that there are very few days that feel that way. And I think there's a parallel to the folks in this book. And I think, you know, maybe I rubbed off a bit on some of them and they certainly have rubbed off on me. It's that pursuing what you love wholeheartedly. And I think I pursued what I loved before I even worried about how I would pay my bills. When he began photographing rock climbing, it was a niche sport with few photographers possessing the skills needed to create breathtaking photographs. Now there is not a shortage of climbers and people who want to photograph them. But even with such competition, he knows the answer to the question that any such photographer should ask themselves. You know, when someone asks that question, how do I make it work? How do I make a career in photography work? One of the answers is you have to ask yourself, what is it that you have that the guy sitting to the to your right or the woman sitting to your left, what is it that you know? What knowledge, what skill set, what's special about you that he doesn't have and she doesn't have and the person sitting behind you or in front of you doesn't have? And, some, and that comes in a lot of different colors, shapes, and forms. It could be knowledge. It could be you're an expert. You know a ton about music. It could be you can hang off of a rope and you're not afraid of heights. I mean, sadly, that, I mean, sadly, uh, that was my thing. Like I was a rock climber. I love to this day. I love rock climbing. So I have this skill set, which is I could hang off a rope and, and loved being in vertical environments. And that separated me from the pack. I was different than the, the folks around me. We but, will talk to Corey about several moments of serendipity that helped to shape his career and how his eagerness to get a shot almost cost him his life. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Corey, w welcome to the show. Pleasure to have you. My pleasure. My pleasure. I enjoyed getting the book and uh, reading through it. You know, one of the, the things that I'm really sort of fascinated by, beyond the, the amazing pictures that you took, are the people that you met. Uh, you know, I always say, as a photographer, that it's, you know, of course you need to understand technically how to use a camera and you need to have good ideas. And, but if you photograph people, you have to have relationships. Yeah. I mean, that's it, right? That, that I love taking pictures and having access to the lives of the people in this book. That's what made my career possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really, I think I was a, you know, I'm a bit of a technician. I sort of understand light and moment and composition, but it's access to people folks' willingness to let me into their lives. And in this case, it's it's not just people, it's people who are, they tend to be the best at what they do, you know, in the, in the genres that I photograph in the sports action adventure sports world. And, but that's what it takes, right? It takes access to incredible people or I can't make pictures. Yeah, yeah, because these people are oftentimes the best at their particular sport, whether it's free climbing, whether it's road biking, whatever it is. And you come in there and it's like, it's intimidating, you know, cause, cause I, I would think, and you can tell me 
coming in, even though they're not photographers, there's a level of performance I think that they probably are used to, not only of themselves, but the people around them. And I think that, you know, if a photographer comes, that they're kind of assessing it based on that. Would you say that? You know, they they definitely expect, you know, I think it goes both ways. You know, now I've been at this for a long time. I mean, I started taking pictures when I was a kid, 13, Mm -hmm. and, you know, working professionally, gosh, going on 25 years when, you know, 18, I got my kind of around 18, my first job at a newspaper. So I've been at this for a long time, but I, and so have they, you know, so have the folks that I'm photographing. And so they have an expectation, as do I, that we're pros. We're going to show up. Mm -hmm. And I know, I know that they're trying to perform at a high level. I know that it takes massive concentration and discipline and muscle memory and getting into this mental state. And, and as a photographer, it requires that same thing for me, at least to make the best pictures, I sort of have to get into that space. And so there's, I think there's just a real mutual appreciation for what I do and what they, I appreciate what they do. They appreciate what I do. And it's, it's a dance. There's a dance that happens when photographing sport in this genre, in, in the yeah. adventure sports world, where it's, it's very unlike photographing a football game. I'm not standing on a sideline pointing my camera at a guy with a number on his back mm-hmm. and trying to track that person. It's, it's usually me and the person or people that I'm photographing, and we're usually in a pretty wild place, yeah. you know, where it's remote. The weather's changing. Like we're all using a lot of physical energy. There's, it's just takes physical energy to be there. And they're trying to perform at the highest level. And I'm trying to create compelling, meaningful storytelling pictures. And so there's instantly uh, at this level, there's a relationship. There's an understanding. As soon as we show up, it's what are we trying to do yeah. and how do we get there? And I, and I can't step on their toes much like dancing. I'm trying to not step on their toes so that they can, you know, it's a, it's a high bar. They're trying yeah. to perform at a high level. And and whoever hired me, whether I got hired or whether I'm doing it on spec, there's also a really high, they can't step on my toes. They know what it takes for me to do what I need to do because it's usually not their first rodeo. They've yeah. had, you know, I've either spent a lot of time with them or they've worked with other photographers or filmmakers. And so it's, you know, there's a bit of when it's time to, to work, it's I show up and it's switching into kind of, you know, game mode. Yeah. And, 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 and if I'm there to photograph them, they're probably about to try to perform at a high level. I mean, that, that's what we're doing. You know, they're about to try to, I, don't, I mean, I, this analogy maybe isn't the best analogy, but, you know, they're about to run. If you're a runner, they're about to run a four minute mile, right? Like that's, you know, they're trying to break four minutes every time I show up. And so, and that's hard. They have to dig deep in the same way that, I try to dig deep to make an image that's surprising. Yeah. And, I, and I think it probably helps, especially early on in your, your career, that you had an affinity for the same sport because you started with rock climbing and then you got you excited about picking up a camera to document your experiences. And that sort of segued into you going out there and making photographs as a, as a career. And I, I can't help but think that you sharing a passion with them and having the same vocabulary even if you weren't at the same level, that that provided a, a way to build almost immediate rapport. No, I, I think that's 100% correct. I, I think part of the spirit of this book is paying it forward. It's sort of sharing right. information, kind of educating. I had a lot of mentors. I had a lot of teachers that played a key role in my life. I had high school teachers, college advisors, you know, journalists at newspapers that took me under their wing. And this is this is kind of part of me paying it forward. It's telling these stories, sharing these kind of anecdotal tales, mostly about my mistakes, the mistakes I made along <laughs> you the way. Made some, you made some doozies. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 that is kind of the key. Is I you know one of the things I love to say, and it's because mentors said this to me. You know, when someone asks that question, how do I make it work? How do I make a career in photography work? One of the answers is. You have to ask yourself, what is it that you have that the guy sitting to the to your right or the woman sitting to your left, what is it that you know, what knowledge, what skill set, what's mm-hmm. special about you 
that he doesn't have and she doesn't have and the person sitting behind you or in front of you doesn't have. And some, and that comes in a lot of different colors, shapes, and forms. It could be knowledge. It could be you're an expert. You know a ton about music. It could be you can hang off of a rope and you're not afraid of heights. I mean, yeah. sadly, that, I mean, sadly, uh, that was my thing. Like I was a rock climber. I love, to this day, I love rock climbing. So I have this skill set, which is, I could hang off a rope and, and loved being in vertical environments. And that separated me from the pack. I was different mm -hmm. than the, the folks around me. But that's the key in photography. It's, I, I like to say that there's, for every job that I do, there's a dozen people that are equally as qualified as I am. I mean, it's unquestionably or better than I am. Yeah. You know, but but in the early days, it, you know, it comes down to I got those jobs because I was I was unique in what I could do. I was a guy that could hang off of a rope. Let, let me reposition that a different way. I think for the in the early days when it was a picture in a vertical environment, I was I was a I was a unique individual. But as I proved I could do that, it opened the door to doing more diverse assignments. And in doing those more diverse assignments, shooting a portrait, for example, yeah. was I the best portrait photographer? Absolutely not. There were many more gifted, more naturally talented, more qualified photographers. But because I had this niche, because I proved I could do something at a high level in this niche, it paved the way to kind of diversifying the type of yeah. work that I would do. And people trusted me. And, it, you know, that that's a perfect uh, segue into this story about doing the nudes, right? Because yeah. you, get, you, get, you get asked the question, do you do nudes? Right. You say, of course. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and basically, they trusted you based on the previous work, but you knew, I've never shot them before. Yeah, yeah. So I... Many years ago, the phone rings and it's an ad agency polar representing Polar Tech, a fabric company that rep makes fleece fabric. And the concept was, you know, imagine a world without Polar Tech. That's what the ad agency dreamed up. And they said, Corey, you know, I'm a kid in college. And they said, Corey, do you shoot portraits? And what about nudes? And, and my philosophy to this day is I, I almost always say yes when yeah. someone asks if I'm qualified, capable, interesting. I just, I just love making pictures. And, and I said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. And in my head, I'm thinking, no, you've got the wrong guy. <laughs> but it sounded intriguing. I thought this would, you know, this would be a blast. And so, but I've always had that philosophy or methodology, which is I'm not going to fail. Like, yeah. I'm going to make sure I will dig deeper. I will work harder. I will spend more money. I'll make less. Whatever it takes to pull it off, that's what I'm going to do. And so I hired my buddy, my college housemate, Jay Clendenin, who's now at the LA Times. And uh, Jay and I flew in two days early and we rented a studio in Denver. And we, and we really did not know, I mean, <laughs> what we were doing. I mean, we were in way over our head. But it turns out in life, when you're in way over your head, that's when you grow, yeah. right? You don't want to be in so deep that, like, there's, it's, you're, gonna, you, you're going to fail. You want to be in deep enough that you're scared as hell and, and yeah. you're sweating it and you're, you're, your heart's beating at a high tempo and you're, you're not sleeping well at night. Because then when you cross that line, when you sort of pull it off, you've grown, like you mm -hmm. experience real growth. And so we just, we paid the piper. We, we showed up two days early. We rented a bunch of lights. We rented a studio. We tested the lights. We rented a Hasselblad and we were shooting film. And for two days, we, you know, we worked 12 or 15 hours a day to just figure it out. Yeah. And, you know, that meant Jay and I shared a room for, you know, instead, we were, we were kids. We were kids at San Jose state when we did this shoot and, um, and we pulled it off. I mean, that was the, you know, and, and there were, it was, the experience was hilarious because we're, we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, we just absolutely didn't know what we were doing. But at the end of the day, you know, the beauty of photography is how you got there almost doesn't matter. It's, did you make the pictures? Yeah. And it's, and we made the pictures like Jay and I pulled it off. We shot four, what I think today, even looking in the rear view mirror are four pretty solid photos of four prolific nude athletes shot in a tasteful way. You know, I, I think, did we learn? We learned a ton. Yeah. We learned a ton. You know, Jay is now one of the most prolific portrait photographers, you know, shoots all of the celebrities for the LA times. And, um, you know, we, we, we joke about that shoot all the time. We were, 
I don't want to say we were winging it because we were digging deep. We were, you know, we were, we were out there to make it work. That's for sure. We were there to make it work. But then once you do it, you, you crack another door open, right? right? It's, you know, you can't, you can't publish excuses. It's like you, at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, you've just got to make it happen. And, and that's it. Like we, you know, there are plenty of, we explain, we had a lot of excuses for one another, why things weren't working and how, but then we solved the problems. And at the end of the day, the publisher, you know, the client had what they needed. Yeah. And that's, I think of all the people that I interview for this show, beyond them being good photographers is the fact that they're all problem solvers in one way or another. And that really is probably the more valuable skill. And then photography is probably the second. Yeah. You know, because if you can solve the problem, sure, you'll, you can get the picture. But if you're just a good photographer, you're not a good problem solver, you're not going to get the photograph. I, you know, on, on that theme of, you know, being the best, I, I always say I, I have no illusion. I'm not the best at anything. I'm good. I'm good. And I work really hard. That's, that's sort of my, you know, I, I'll work really hard. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll dig deep. I'll work hard. But I, I think the phone rings, you know, I get emails, I get assignments. Now, you know, now I'm 43 years old. I know that one of the reasons the phone rings is because I've made all of the mistakes that I talk about in the book. Yeah. And I've learned from them. That's I don't repeat those mistakes. I mean, every now and again, I make the same mistake. And I, I find myself in that moment and I'm kicking myself. It's, you knew better, Corey. Like, you knew better than to allow this to happen again. But nine times out of ten, a client is calling a photographer or a filmmaker, a storyteller with experience and they're hiring them because you're paying for a guarantee. Mm-hmm. That's what you're paying for. You're, you're hiring someone because there's a higher likelihood that person, in this case me, isn't going to screw it up because I've probably already learned that lesson. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that is what you get out of experience, right? That's what you get out of school. You learn how to operate a camera, but you also kind of hear the tales of what to do mm-hmm. and what not to do. <laughs> and if you can keep that in your head, you're, you're ahead of the pack. Yeah. With the kind of work that you do, there's so much that's kind of out of your control. You know, the weather, the locations. I think one of the things that I learned reading the book was how important uh, cool temperatures are for for rock climbing. It's something I never really kind of thought of, but it makes perfect sense. It gets hot, it gets warm, your hands get sweaty, slippery, you can't. And it's like, wow, yeah, of course. You know, but if you're trying to shoot, and uh, one of the examples in there, there was a location with the boulder, that even in the early mornings, it it was really prohibitively hot to be able to do that. And it's like... You know, you only have so many days there in India to, to, to pull off the picture and, and to shoot the, you know, shoot the film for it. And it's like, uh, what are we going to do? You don't right. want to come away from, from that with nothing. It's, it's really common for me on shoots to be having strategy conversations. There's a lot of strategizing mm-hmm. with the athletes because we're, we're sort of weighing kind of different needs. Okay. You know, when you describe the, you know, the temperatures in India, I was shooting with Chris Sharma, one of the greatest rock climbers of all time. And, and there were kind of, we were getting pulled in three directions. There, there was Chris, the athlete, needed the coolest temperatures possible so that he could stick to the rock and climb the hardest, most aesthetic looking boulder problems. As a photographer, I needed the best light, right? I needed, I needed early and late light. And there was also a video production crew, Josh Lowell and his brother, Brett Lowell shooting a film about this trip and, and their needs were much more like mine. They needed nice light. They needed a story. They also needed it to be quiet, which, which affected me. They didn't want to hear my mirror flipping up and down because I was shooting film at that era in that era. And so there's always this dance and it turned out it worked for us that the cooler temperatures tended to be early in the morning or late at night. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted as a photographer. That's what they wanted as a, as a film crew was to shoot in that early light, late light. You know, but what Chris actually wanted was to climb the two hours before the sun even came up or the two hours after the sun went down. So there's always this kind of conversation around what's going to work best for you as the athlete right. and what's going to work best for me as the photographer or as the storyteller. And, and the best scenarios are when they totally overlap. Our needs are identical. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, in, in the world of climbing, sometimes climbers need the shade 
to, sh- you know, it's too yeah. hot in the sun, but I need the sun early or late light because it's going to just look more compelling. And, and so that, you know, that it's that fine line. There's always a conversation of around, how's this going to work? Like, how do we actually make this? How do we make this work? In general, I default to what, what will it take for the athlete to do what they need to do? And I'm there to document what that athlete is doing. I'm I'm working around their schedule and their needs. You know, your career started at an interesting time in terms of the, um, uh, the, the period of sort of adventure lifestyles sort of becoming a, a big a big thing. So there, there were magazines and publications out, but not to the degree that there are, are now. So it seems like there was a very different community of people. And from my read, you've had some really interesting characters. But, but tell me about, about your observation in terms of the change, in terms of the community, because it's, it's a small, tight-knit community, but the characters have sort of changed and evolved over, over time. And you know, how has that uh, sort of colored the way you see it, experience it, and, and photograph it? You know, the popularity of the sports that I'm passionate about and the sports that I've photographed, I think that's what has changed. You know, when I, when I was a kid and I became a rock climber, it was a real fringe activity. Mm-hmm. It was sort of a, it was a, it was a fringe activity. It was very few people did it. It was, you know, l- let me put it in this, in these words. When I was 15 or 18 and I wanted to kind of master the craft of photographing rock climbing mm-hmm. and turn that into a career, there was no book on photographing rock climbing. There was no, you couldn't go to the library and check out a book, the how-to guide to become a rock climbing photographer. Fast forward 20 years, there's several books on how to photograph rock climbing. It's, it's actually, a, yeah. and the sport, the sport of rock climbing is, is no longer fringe. I think it's safe to say, you know, every town USA has not a climbing gym, but many climbing gyms. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's in the Olympics in Tokyo next year. Yeah. So it's now an Olympic sport. 25 years ago, you know, climbers were sort of the outliers, the outlaws in Yosemite, sort of the, you know, the, the weirdos in Yosemite. Mm-hmm. And it's, so that's what's changed. You know, in, in the beginning, there were certainly publications, you know, there were vertical publications, very niche publications. You know, there were magazines that I worked for in college photographing rock climbing. Today, it's just a much more mainstream activity. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not, it's never going to be the scale of football or baseball or basketball, but it's, it's just much more mainstream. I mean, I, you know, I live in a tiny town in the mountains in South Lake Tahoe, California, and we have a climbing gym now. You know, we have a, an indoor climbing facility. I don't know how many are, you know, I bet within a hundred mile radius of your place here, you know, in the greater yeah. LA basin, you guys have a number of I know of at gyms. least two within a short distance. From that's here. right. Yeah. That's right. So this, the, it's just become more popular. I, I'm glad that these outdoor adventure sports have become more popular. I've always felt that one of my jobs, one of my responsibilities as an adventure photographer is to make pictures that compel people enough to want to go outside, Mm -hmm. to experience nature, to experience the outdoors in some capacity for themselves. If I do that, if my pictures inspire people to go outside, get dirty, walk through nature, sweat a little bit, get dirt under their fingernails, I've done my job. And, And then I'm doing something that's even more meaningful, which is once people go outside and appreciate mother nature, what this planet has to offer, we're willing to care a little more about this planet. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to care about things that you, that you don't experience that you, that you, that you don't see every day. And I, regardless of, regardless of that topic, I mean, homelessness, you know, poverty would, when it's, when you're staring it in the eyes, you have a much deeper, more meaningful appreciation for that cause. And, and one of those causes that I think we're all, it, it's in our daily conversation today is it's our, it's our planet. Yeah. You know, one of the characters you write about in the book is Becky mm. and he, stu- you know, he, he stood out to me, not just because he's an interesting looking fella, but he really sort of speaks to the, the kind of character that often sort of adopts a way of life, not so much a sport. 
And you've had that with people who are surfers, people who are bikers. But I was really glad that you included him in the book because it gives me a sense of one of these people who was an early part of it that I think would have easily been overlooked. Because I think oftentimes when we think of like the legends of any particular sport, they always seem like Greek gods, right? They have the chiseled abs, the hard chin. You know, they're just gorgeous people. And here was this guy in his eight, who was actively, you know, climbing in his eighties, and who's just like, this is what he does. And I was just, it was just a fascinating glimpse into, you know, what the culture was like uh, for a very long time in that sport. You know, Fred Becky. Fred Becky was the original dirtbag. And, and, and when I use that expression, when we say that in the climbing world, that's a term of respect. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a guy that helped define a lifestyle. I mean, Fred started climbing when he was in his teenage years, and he climbed into his 90s. Yeah. I mean, he just passed away in his early 90s last year, two years ago. And Fred Becky, it's safe to say Fred Becky did more first ascents, meaning he was the first guy to climb rock walls or mountains or stand on top of peaks than any human alive. And no one will ever do more first ascents than Fred Becky because Fred kind of lived at this goal in this golden age of mountaineering and of climbing. He, you know, I, I feel blessed to have not just met Fred, but to really call Fred a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Fred was a guy that would pass through my home in Lake Tahoe periodically. And I was on a, on a list of, you know, Fred was famous for having a list of car- on cardboard of everyone that lived in each town. And he had one piece of cardboard that was South Lake Tahoe. And so, you know, I was somewhere on that list and he would just go through his call list of, to see who was available, who was home. And, you know, the phone call would always come in. Corey, it's Fred Becky. <laughs> Are you home? Are you home? Because he, you know, he assumed even when we went to like voicemail on phones, yeah. he still thought he was getting an answering machine. So he'd repeat himself five times thinking you could hear it on a speaker in the background. You know, it's Becky. <laughs> it's Becky. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. And oftentimes I, I had caller ID. And if I was just so busy, I couldn't pick up because you couldn't say no. Yeah. And so if I picked up the phone, Fred Becky was going to be at my house within 48 hours. And, and I just have so many great, fond memories of Fred showing up at the house. He, uh, my wife would always make a bed for him. Yeah. You know, we had a spare bedroom, and she would make the bed for him. And she would insist, Fred, there's a bed in the guest room. You should stay in the guest room. And when I woke him up the next morning, it, never, it was always the case that I would crack the door open because it was hard of hearing after I knocked on the door. You know, Fred, are you there? You know, Fred, are you there? And he couldn't hear anything. So eventually I'd open the door and I'd have to kind of, you know, push him with my foot. But he'd be laying on the hardwood floor in his sleeping bag because he just didn't want to be a nuisance. Yeah. He didn't want to, you know, have to force, force us to change the sheets again. But, you know, he was the original dirtbag, and he was also just an, a, a lifetime hard man. Yeah. Meaning he wasn't, a, he, he just, his value system was very different. You know, he, I think one of the things I learned from Fred was, you know, I, I say this about myself, that I'm much more about the journey. I'm, I'm the guy, I'm, you know, th- there's the old saying to travel, hopefully is better than to arrive. Right. It's about Mm -hmm. Fred was Fred was Fred was not about arriving. Fred was about the journey. He was on this constant journey. He was with friends, people that he cared about, never got married, never had kids. But in his late 80s, you would ask him, Fred, you you have a serious conversation. And you'd say, Fred, you think you'll ever get married? And he said, ah, maybe, maybe one day, you know, maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe one day. And then, you know, near the end of his life, Fred admitted, he said, yeah, maybe I should have gotten married. You know, maybe I should have had kids. But Fred was a guy that, you know, he marched, he just marched to a different drum. He knew what he loved and he loved it so deeply that it became him. Yeah. Because I was thinking that this sport um, was very analogous to surf culture, early surf, surf culture, where people love surfing. And it wasn't like it is now where you have sponsorship and you know, there's a means by which you can possibly earn a living from it. In the early days of both sports, if you wanted to make this your life, you just went out and made it your life. And you just catch as catch can. You do whatever you need to do to be able to catch the waves in Costa Rica. And I think that people that are that passionate or they're committed are, are really impressive. Not just because of what they're doing, but 
them making the choice to be that committed. And I'm wondering for you as, as, as a photographer, how does that sort of color the way you see the things that you want to do when you see people who are so, so committed to an experience, not even a sport, but just an experience that is so integral to who they are. That's a great observation, which is most of the folks in this book, the athletes, the people, the superstars, the sort of the pioneers of the sports. If you ask them, do you have a job? Their answer is no. Like, I'm, no, I don't, I'm, I don't have a job. It's, it's a work is life and life is work scenario. It's yeah. a culture. It's a lifestyle. It's, it's wholly them what they're doing. It's, they're so deeply passionate. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying this, I'm making some sweeping generalizations, but it virtually applies to everyone in this book. All of the great athletes in this book, it's, they're not just athletes. They're pursuing excellence. They're trying to push it. They're, they're pushing it to the limit. They're, they're pursuing excellence on a daily basis, but it's, they don't, they don't look at it as a job. They don't clock in, Mm -hmm. they don't clock out. They don't think about when they're working and when they're not working. And I think that rubbed off on me. I mean, I, 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 can, I look at my career in a very similar way. I, I never feel like I clock in. I, in fact, see, I could say it two different ways. I'm not sure I feel like I've ever worked a day in my life because I'm doing exactly what I love. I mean, I'm doing, I have, that's, that, you know, that's an exaggeration. There have been some days where I thought, I am working right now. <laughs> this sucks. I don't want to be here. Mm-hmm. This is hard. I'm tired. I'm, I'm not stimulated. This is not what I want to be doing, but I'm working. But I'll say that there are very few days that feel that way. And I think there's a parallel to the folks in this book. And I think, you know, maybe I rubbed off a bit on some of them and they certainly have rubbed off on me. It's that pursuing what you love wholeheartedly and I think I pursued what I loved before I even worried about how I would pay my bills. It was, you know, make great pictures, be in the places that you want to be beautiful, wild places, working hard with people that you care about. And the rest of it falls into place. I, you know, I sit, I, I talk to college students a lot, young photographers, they could be in college, they could be in high school, they could be kind of second career type folks that are looking to transition in photography. And when the conversation starts with the question, like, how do I get my first assignment? I always say, don't, for a second, don't worry about that. Don't worry about the money. Don't worry about the assignments. Don't worry about the marketing. Let me see your pictures. And you look mm-hmm. at their pictures and the pictures are okay. And, and I like to say, and I used to apply this same kind of thinking to myself, all you need to worry about, the only thing that you need to worry about is make freaking awesome photos, pictures that are not okay, not good, but they're great. They're better than anyone else out there. Mm-hmm. And as soon as that happens, the rest falls into place. Yeah, I mean, it really does. Nine mm-hmm. times out of 10, if you make great pictures, better than what others are making, everything else falls into place. When I tell people that I produce a podcast, I think sometimes they're either confused or amused. If it's the former, it's usually because they don't understand what a podcast is. And if it's the latter, They think it's just a hobby I I just picked up. When I tell them I've been doing this for almost 14 years, they really don't know what to make of me. And it's okay that they don't get it because this show is, is really not for them. It's for people like you who share a passion not only for taking photographs, but living a life filled with challenges and creativity. As difficult as it can be to do the many things I do, I am sustained by the fact that so many of you are inspired and encouraged by the conversations we bring you each week. So many of you have told me that the show means a lot to you. It's not just empty noise droning in the background. It's somehow making a difference. And if that's you, and if you haven't yet supported the show, why don't you do it today? $5 or more a month may not sound like much, but when you join other Patreon supporters, you are making the work here a little easier to do each week. 
I'm not relying on advertisers and sponsors to make it all happen. I rely on you, and I always welcome your help. So become a Patreon supporter and commit to a reoccurring donation of $5 or more a month. Visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame and become a Patreon supporter today. Thanks. But what's interesting about your career is that you have one picture you don't consider your best picture, which is the picture of your friend getting a shot after him being bit by a jellyfish. It's hardly your best photograph, but yeah. it opened a whole lot of doors. So why don't you tell people the story behind that and for people who haven't seen the picture, what it looks like and, and what happened as a result of that picture getting out there? Sure, sure. I want to say one thing while it's on my mind and then I'll, okay. I'll tell that story, which is, you know, the, one of the other questions that I hear a lot and I've now that I'm talking about this book and I'm doing presentations, the question that I'm probably getting the most is, Sometimes it gets asked in front of a big audience and sometimes mm-hmm. it's one-on-one when I'm signing books. It's Corey, what's the secret sauce? Like, what's the secret? How do you do this? How do you make a career in photography? And the first two or three times I got asked the question, I'm not sure I had a good answer. And then I, because I'm sitting on planes a lot right now and I'm traveling, I'm dedicated yeah. to sharing, right? That's the spirit of this book is sharing. And it, and it hit me all at once while flying to the next show presentation, I, it struck me that, oh, this is it. There's a really simple answer. It's you just work really hard. The secret is you work really, really, really hard all the time. Yeah. And that's it. Like that's, that is the secret. I, you know, look, there's a few folks in my career that I've met where they're just so talented and so smart that they don't have to work really, really, really hard all the time. But the other 99.9% of folks in the photography and the filmmaking and the storytelling world, this applies to writers, it applies to filmmakers, maybe it applies to everyone. Mm-hmm. It's, you just work a lot harder than the guy next to you. You just dig deeper. It means you, you make sacrifices in life. You don't get to do some of the things that everybody else is doing because they're not working. They're not busy working. And, yeah. but it's, that's it. Like the real, the secret sauce is, you just work really damn hard and you do it a lot. I mean, I, Andy Mann is a good, good friend of mine, a photographer. Andy was saying the other day, Andy said, you know, I always hear people talk about the 10,000 hour rule. Mm-hmm. And Andy said the 10,000 hour rule, it's more like the 60,000 hour rule. I mean, that's what it really takes yeah. to sort of master the craft of photography or to become good at that craft of photography but anyway that, i just wanted to say that because you no, asked but that, about but that. that's no because that's an ex, that's an i think that's an excellent point because i think that there are a lot of people who get initially excited about doing something but then it gets to a point where it gets hard that podcasting is the perfect example right i've been doing this for going on 14 years now and i've seen a lot of people come and go and especially over the last th- probably four or five years with the whole explosion of podcasting with everyone getting on board. There are a bunch of people jumping in very enthusiastic. And after about three or four episodes, they realize, Oh, there's not a lot of people listening yet. And they get disheartened and and they stop. And it was like, you know, for me, I love doing this. I love sitting down and having a conversation with someone. So even if there were just a dozen people listening, I didn't really care. Because I just loved this. And the audience grew, you know, over time. But if I had been waiting it based on some external affirmation of some sort, whether it was financial or anything like that, there's no way I would have been able to sustain it for as long as I have. And I think you're speaking exactly in terms of being a photographer and or just anything. You, You have to be doing it. Because that you you can't help but think that how do I phrase this? You couldn't think of your life not doing it. That's right. It has to be deeply fulfilling. Yeah, it's it's something that you need, it's something that you that you enjoy deeply. Yeah, I, I couldn't yeah. agree with you more. But I, you know, the question that you asked around the photograph of my buddy Tom Bulow getting a shot in his ass with the surf trunks pulled <laughs> yeah. down in Mexico on the same table that we ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner (laughs) in the cantina. That's a picture I shot when I was in college, and it was for um, Patagonia, the clothing Mm -hmm. brand. 
And, and I think the really important takeaway from that photograph is, as you said, any photographer that looks at the raw image, the, the yeah. transparency, the first reaction, I think, is this is a poorly executed photograph. You know, the lens was too wide. I cropped his head. I blasted him with the flash. Mm -hmm. But it's gritty and raw. But there's there's an energy there. There's a yeah. moment you're seeing something in life that you don't otherwise see on a regular basis. And and I, I you know I think the lesson for me in that photo that that became a real stepping stone photograph in my career. I mean, it opened a, an entirely new chapter in my life in my in my professional career. And one of my takeaways from that photograph is you need, you need people, you need, you need your personal board of directors. You need mm -hmm. people to give you feedback. And at that moment in time, I was working a lot with Jane Sievert. So I needed collaboration. And Jane Sievert was an incredibly gifted photo editor. Far more, she was passionate about editing pictures in mm -hmm. the same way that I was passionate about being on the road, being on the journey making pictures and she could see things in my photography that I couldn't see as a photographer. And, but I had to be open-minded enough to listen to what other people had to say. Yeah. And she was one of those advisors. She was one of those colleagues that I trusted and that was as passionate about editing as I was passionate about making pictures. Yeah. And she saw something in that roll of film and that take in the hundred rolls of film I shot on that trip to mainland Mexico. She saw an image that I definitely would not have. I would have thrown that in the trash. It would have gone straight off the light table into the trash can. You know, I used to have a technique where I'd lay all my slides out on the table yeah. and I'd pull the images I like and the rest I would just with the trash can right at the end of the table, like, yeah. you know, dominoes, just slide them into the trash. And, but Jane had a vision that I didn't have. And that's, you know, it took time to develop trust. You know, as a photographer, I've always tried to be my harshest critic. I'm so critical of what I shoot. I, I, I've always appreciated what folks around me have said about my work, good or bad. I have to hear, I have to listen to what they're saying. But at the end of the day, I've always been my toughest critic. But then it takes a person like Jane Sievert, who has that gift and you have trust and a relationship mm -hmm. to identify a picture and 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 for me it took letting go yeah kind of acknowledging and accepting that i don't always have the reins other people are going to take the reins i need to trust their judgment and I need to trust their edit and I need to trust their vision and and i think that's something i learned pretty early on i mean i you know i see photographers go in kind of two different directions it's it's their way or the highway and that's a really lonely way to live because mm -hmm. they can only work alone and, and I was the opposite. I learned early on that, well, I'm surrounded by a lot of people that are, they're smarter than me. Yeah. <laughs> they're more talented than me. They're funnier than me. They're, you know, they're, they're better looking. You know, it's just all of those things. And then you, you either adopt this philosophy, which is I'm better when I'm with a team mm -hmm. or there's the, the other, the, the polar opposite is nope. It's me and me alone. And I, I became the guy that was, nope, I want to be surrounded by amazing people. Yeah. And I want a team around me because it, it allow I'm, I become a better version of myself. I became a better version of myself because I'm surrounded by awesome people. And that's ideal for your transition from doing just stills to start doing motion, you know, with to doing video and being a director. That's right. Because um, yeah. if you don't have that attitude, how, how the hell can you achieve anything? You have the opportunity to work with the pre-production D4 to uh, do this amazing shoot. Uh, where they gave you complete license to do anything, which I think a lot of people think that's ideal, but that's also can be very terrifying because you know that everything is being left to uh, to you. But tell me about that experience because that was a sort of a significant one on a lot of counts. Sure, that that was that assignment was another stepping stone moment for me, a real transitional opportunity. You know, the phone rang and it was Tokyo, Japan, from Nikon's corporate headquarters. And, and, and it was one of those dream assignments. They mm -hmm. said, we're giving you a blank canvas. You tell us what you want to do. You need to shoot a video and you need to shoot still photos. And I opted to, and what was significant about the D4 
was that it was the first video-enabled DSLR where you could control audio levels. Now, that sounds insignificant today, but yeah. you know, early on, the Nikon D90, the very first video-enabled DSLR, even before the Canon 5D, you could record video and it looked cinematic, but you had virtually no other control. I don't think you could even manually control the exposure when you were shooting video on that first Nikon D90. So this was sort of, you know, a couple of generations later, out comes the D4 and you could, you could actually record sound and control sound levels all on this small form factor DSLR. That was a big deal. Yeah. All of a sudden you could really tell stories. And so I, I pitched the idea of let's profile three prolific adventure athletes, um, Alex Honnold, rock climber, Dane Jackson, whitewater kayaker, and Rebecca Rush, endurance mountain biker. And, but here, here was, it wasn't going to be a cologne commercial. You know, Vince Lafare used to always talk about his own work. You know, he would kind of, he did the 5D launch and he did this incredible video. I forgot what it was called, but he shot in New York in low light. Mm -hmm. And, and Vincent would always joke. He's like, you know, now when I look back, it's like a cologne commercial and, and so, but this was the first kind of video camera launch video where I was going to have people talking, you know, if, in, using a DSLR. And so it was interview driven and it was, yeah. you know, we did an interview with each of them and we shot B-roll of them doing their activity. And I made one of those decisions, you know, that I make frequently. It goes back to that, you know, nude shoot of, am I the most qualified guy to do this? Maybe not, maybe not, but we're going to work hard. And I'm, and I just... It wasn't about business. It wasn't how am I going to make as much money on this project as possible. It was how am I going to create something that's really cool? Mm-hmm. And and it goes back to that philosophy of I'm willing to work harder, spend more. You know, we didn't make much money on that job because I just spent it all. But I saw it as this opportunity to just do something really cool. Yeah. So I brought, you know, I surrounded myself with a team of amazing people that were smarter, more talented equally as passionate, funnier, and people that I wanted to spend time with. That's, that's the other key yeah. ingredient. People that when that chemistry is right, the collective creativity bar goes up. And that's certainly what happened on that project. We also made the commitment to bring a drone. This was very early in the, you know, in the RC remote control helicopter days. It was kind of DIY style. Yeah. My, my buddy, Mike Hagerdorn, he built a drone in Colorado and, you know, we spent, we didn't have the budget to bring a drone on the project, but we did for, you know, 20 days or 17 days. And, you know, on day two, we crashed the drone with the prototype with camera. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my client, I think he had a heart attack because, you know, there were a couple of prototypes on the planet at that point. Yeah, one of the guys from Japan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah one, of, yeah, one of our clients from Japan. I mean, it was, you know, he looked me in the eyes as we're kind of, the drone is hovering above the ground and he says, and we're about to fly over water. You know, we're mm-hmm. sort of day one or day two of this three-week shoot. And he looks at me and he says, Corey-san, do you think this is a good idea? And in my head, I'm thinking, no, this is an awful idea, but all I can do is look you in the eyes right now and say, oh, it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. And But that's what it takes sometimes. You know, n- never do I take risks where I'm, where I'm putting myself or someone else's well-being in harm's way. I mean, mm-hmm. I, that's not worth it. It's never worth getting hurt or risking dying for a photograph at all, even though my pictures might look like that. I'm I'm in this for the long run. I want to do this for another sixty years. But that one story you have about that climb with uh, Tommy Caldwell, you know, when you lose that line when you try yeah. to get the shot. I mean, I I literally choked when I read that uh, yeah. chapter, and I was just like, because I've made a lot of mistakes trying to get a photograph, none of which, except maybe stepping out into the street and almost getting hit by a bus, <laughs> you know. But I read that, and it was just like. Tell us about that and tell me about what was the most important lesson that you learned from almost dying for the sake of a picture. You can never get complacent. That's the key. You can never get too comfortable. And I, and I don't think this just applies to photographing rock climbing. I think this applies to street photography. You know, your Mm -hmm. example of stepping into the street and almost getting nailed by a bus. You know, my scenario on El Cap, on El Capitan in Yosemite with Tommy is very similar to almost getting hit by a bus. We walk on sidewalks every day. You walk, you know, you walk to work, you go to the grocery store, you, you look through a viewfinder and you, you know, step out between cars, but you usually look, 
but occasion, you know, maybe you're in, in another country and the traffic's coming from another angle. Mm-hmm. You know, at, at that moment in my career, I was probably spending 300 days a year hanging in vertical environments, you know, hanging on a rope, taking pictures. And, and Tommy and I and Beth Rodden, we were photographing on the nose of El Capitan. It's the prow of El Capitan, the most famous rock climb of all time. And um, Lynn Hill free climbed uh, the nose 20 years ago, first human ever to free climb the nose, meaning she had a rope, but used only her hands and feet to get up the nose. And then Beth Rodden was the second person, male or female to climb the nose. And that happened almost 15 years later. It took that long for someone to repeat the climb. And then Tommy became the first third person, first male to repeat the climb, which is that's rare in sport, right? Mm. That, that, that sort of, you know, the women do it first, even in the climbing world, that's rare. I was on El Cap with Tommy and Beth and Tommy was working through the crux pitch, which is called the changing corners pitch. It's this incredible 90 degree corner and his body is wedged in it. And these sort of, you know, it looked like a uh, contortionist in the corner trying to stick to the wall and it was just a little too warm, even though we were there, you know, just as the sun was coming up, still in the shade. And he spit out of the corner and he was frustrated. And as Beth was lowering him down, I was rappelling down the rope. And now there's one important detail. As I was shooting the photos, Tommy's still battling it out, trying to stick to the wall. My rope was in the shot, meaning the white rope that I was hanging on went back into the frame. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a, that's a, that's a, you know, it's a no, no in the world of adventure. You don't want to reveal how you're there. So I yelled down to Beth. I said, Beth, can you unclip the rope? And Beth reached into the anchor, unclipped the rope. You know, she's focused on belaying her then husband on the hardest, one of the hardest pitches in the world. And my rope swings free. And all of a sudden I have a clean background and I'm doing my job. So he falls off. He's getting lowered. I'm repelling down my rope and we're having, you know, a little small talk between us. He's 10 feet away. And he says, stop, what are you doing? And, and he was, he was so sort of adamant with the statement. I stopped and I said, what are you talking about? And I looked down and I realized my fault a hundred percent. I just, I got too complacent. I never bothered to check that when Beth cut the rope loose, I never pulled it up and put a knot in the end of the rope. And so I was, you know, a foot and a half or two feet away from just repelling straight off the end of the rope and free falling, you know, 2000 feet uh-huh. down to the valley floor. And, and the lesson, the lesson is, one life is really flat, fragile. I mean, our, our just our lives are fragile, and two, it's really easy to sort of get complacent, yeah. sort of be in a place where you take for granted where you are and the, the sort of inherent risk. And you know, for, for honestly, for a couple of months, I mean, I just I was vigilant about checking my knots and checking, you know, not mm-hmm. twice, but three or four or five times, you know, it was, a, it was a good scare that I probably needed. And to this day, I mean, it's, it's certainly the closest I've ever come to, you know, to quote unquote the end. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, but not, it's never worth it. I've never, never have I had that feeling I'm willing to take big risks to make pictures because I, you know, I, I just enjoy what I do too much. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, you know, I don't, I know that I don't like being hurt. Yeah. Getting hurt's a bummer because then I can't take pictures. I can't be outside. I can't be sweating and having adventures. I can't be on the journey mm-hmm. when I'm hurt. And, you know, obviously it goes without saying that, you know, if I die, that's it. That's yeah. the, that's the end. I'm not, I'm definitely the journey's over. And so I want, I want this to be sustainable. I want to do this for a long time. So, you know, like you said you're in your early forties but there are a lot of young guys coming up. And so in terms of you being able to just to keep up, I know you're doing directing. And so it may not demand that you get as physically, it may not be as in physically intense for you, but still it's some of the situations are sort of very demanding. So what do you do in order to make sure that you can sort of keep up with some of the young and obviously incredibly fit, athletes that uh, you're having to photograph and film. I mean, that's one of my favorite aspects of photographing adventurous sports is that I have to be a participant. Meaning, you know, I, I always use the example of the football game. Mm-hmm. There is no just sidelines. I mean, in general, it's not, it's not we're at a, at a field and 
you stand on the sidelines and you point a long lens at the athletes. In order for me to make the pictures that I make, to have access to the stories that I tell, I've got to be there. I've got to be part of it. I've got to be on El Capitan. I've got to be in the mountains. I've got to be on skis skiing. I've got to be on a mountain bike to access that location or, you know, floating in the surf in a wetsuit as it's happening. And I love that part. I mean, I think that's, I fell in love with the experience part first, the actual climbing part. Mm -hmm. Then I picked up a camera to document those weekend adventures. And, you know, sort of for me within a week, I fell in love with, at 13 years old, I fell in love with rock climbing and then I fell in love with climbing. And I had no idea then that 30 years later, those two passions would, would shape who I am and it would be my career and how I pay my bills and it's what I love and it's my culture and my friends. But that's the best part of shooting the, the culture and the sports that I shoot. I have to be a participant and, and I love being a participant, which means there's nothing I want to do more than after work, get on my mountain bike and ride uphill for an hour and a half or mm. go to the climbing gym. Or, you know, my, my wife and I, when we plan a, a vacation, it usually means we're going to do something outside with, with our daughter. It's we're going with a few families to go rock climbing in an exotic location. And it's not that we're doing a ton of rock climbing on those family trips. It goes back to that journey thing. We're with people that we love, that we care about our friends you know, hope now we have, you know, other, our child and their children are growing up together and we're sleeping in tents or we're sharing little, you know, apartments that we rented in some far flung place on the planet. But I, but I love sweating. I actually love getting my heart rate up. I love sort of pushing myself and I get, it, it allows me to enter, you know, what, what athletes will call the flow state. You know, I find I'm the most creative when my heart beats at 140 or 150 and uh-huh. sweat's dripping into my eyes and there's a little bit of fear and I'm managing risk and I'm sort of calculating what I'm going to do. And then I bring the camera to my eye because I'm there. I'm in the moment. Uh-huh. I'm more creative in that situation. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. Because yeah. for me, it's like I try to get very even, even tempered. I try to get into almost a meditative state where I'm, and we're probably getting to the same state, but in a different way, because for me, it's like being completely in the moment where I'm not thinking about the moment before or the moment after I am just present and observing. But for me, I can't have my heart rate that high. I have to be like, yeah. I think we're describing the exact same yeah. scenario. You're, you're describing the flow state. This is kind of a new term and uh-huh. in science. And I'm describing the same thing for me. I get into that meditative kind of Zen state when I'm in that sort of my heart beats at that, for whatever reason, I need that high tempo. I need the wind blowing in my face. I need sweat. I need a little bit of fear. I need, and I, I I like to say that I'm, you know, in the climbing world, I'll use that as an example. I spend a lot of time getting there, right? I'm Mm -hmm. ascending ropes. We're hiking to the base with heavy loads and then we're getting on ropes and I'm ascending them and I'm trying to figure out how do I get into this position? I'm trying to preconceive the moment, the, the image that I want to capture. And it takes a ton of work to get there and it's hard work and I'm doing manual labor. I'm like a vertical baggage handler. And then I finally get into that position and then I need to shift gears really quickly from, okay, I'm here. I like what I'm seeing. I check the knots. I look, I look above me. There's no rock falling. I, I'm safe. Now switch gears and I have to block all of that out mm-hmm. and be creative. Now it's time to sort of switch gears. And now it's about what's happening in that rectangle that I'm yeah. staring through the viewfinder. And now I switch to thinking about the composition and the light and the moment and the relationship between myself and the climber mm-hmm. and the athlete. It's sort of, what is that? What's the, what's the dialogue, whether it's verbal or whether it's, it's, whether it's quite, whatever that relationship is, I'm managing that and I'm being creative and we're describing the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, my, m- probably my heart rate drops slightly in that moment, but it took that warm up. It's sort of, you know, the warm up is mm-hmm. I have to get there. I've got to, I've sort of got to get into that rhythm. I've got to be a participant. And it's not to say that I don't do jobs where, you know, I, I do plenty of work where my feet are squarely on the ground, standing <laughs> on concrete and I'm, you know, I'm around a team or I'm shooting photos and I can get there. I can be very creative in those environments, but definitely my peak performance. Mm-hmm is in those environments where I'm, I'm really 
deep in it and I have to switch gears. I have oh. to shift into creativity. That's, that's fascinating. Uh, well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who that one photographer be and why? Yeah, you know, this is, um, there's not a short story here, but it's worthy of, of kind of an yeah, explanation. For years, I was business partners with Jose Azell. Jose and I owned a company called Aurora Photos. It was a stock photography agency. And Jose founded the company many years ago with the National Geographic photographers, pre-Getty and Corbis. Mm -hmm. they, Jose just found there was, there was no way to kind of license their stories after they shot them for the Geographic. You know, fast forward 10 years, I became Jose's partner. We launched an outdoor adventure division to the Aurora Photos, the stock photography agency. There is no more Aurora Photos. They've, they've since been purchased. But one of the traditions that Jose and I really loved was that on an annual basis, we would do a photographer's meeting, kind of modeled after the National Geographic photographer's meeting. And we would invite all of our contributors to Maine. That's where our office was, Portland, Maine. And every year we would, we would ask a photographer to come and be kind of the keynote speaker, someone who would inspire the troops. A mm -hmm. hundred photographers would show up and our staff. And, and um, we had incredible, incredible presenters. And one year we asked Tom Frost to join. And Tom is in the, in the photography conversation. People just don't know Tom Frost, but Tom Frost was a, um, he was an engineer by training, went to Stanford and he was the co-founder of Patagonia, the clothing company. He and mm -hmm. Yvonne Chouinard. Then it was called Chouinard Equipment. And Tom was the engineering brain behind making the early climbing equipment, pitons and carabiners. And, and Frost, um, Frost was also a pioneer in climbing. He was one of the first guys to climb El Capitan and establish the techniques for climbing El Capitan. He had that engineering brain, mm -hmm. kind of could come up with the process. Tom and I became good friends, and um, at one point, I realized that Tom had some of the most historic photographs of, of the pioneers in climbing in Yosemite National Park. And so, of course, Tom was a mentor, and so I one day asked Tom, would you mind if I came by your house and I'd love to look at your archive? We'd love to represent some of your photos at Aurora. And so Tom invited me over. He was probably in his 70s at that point. And so I drove to his house in the Central Valley of California and I sat down and I had my loop. I had a nice Schneider loop mm -hmm. and light table. And, and I didn't know how much Tom had shot over his career, but Tom being an engineer, his photography was very organized. He had a shelf and he had binders mm -hmm. and he handed me the first binder and I you know, put it out on the light table, black and white negatives. And I looked in the loop and I get to the third frame and it's one of the most iconic photographs of all time, climbing photographs of all time. Get to the fifth slot image negative. It's also iconic. And I get kind of through the first three pages and I'm seeing iconic photographs, but in between the ones that have been published, I see other even more fantastic images. And I ask Tom at one point, I'm, you know, a few, a few contact sheets. And I say, Tom, how did you, you know, how long had you been shooting by the time you shot these pictures. And Tom said, he was confused by my question. And then he finally said, Corey, I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. And I said, well, Tom, these are really amazing pictures. How much had you shot before you shot? You know, I'm looking at three rolls of film. I mean, had you been shooting for 20 years, 10 years, five years before you shot these? And he, and he was puzzled. And then finally said, no, I, I borrowed a camera that morning God. before I went up on El Cap to do one of the first ascents in Yosemite from a guy in the campground because he thought it would be smart to make some images of this mm -hmm. ascent. And I, and I was floored. I realized I've looked at, I, I think I've reviewed a thousand portfolios now in my lifetime and I've sat in on another thousand portfolio reviews. And I, and I, I was in awe. I looked at this man in his mid seventies sitting across the desk as calmly as he could be, you know, relaxed. And I, and I said, Tom, these are some of the most compelling photographs that I've, that I've ever looked at. And you're telling me this is like, you had never shot before. And he said, no, that's roll one. I mean, it's, and they're labeled like an engineer, zero one, zero two, zero three. Yeah. And, you know, I went on to look at, you know, several hundred rolls of film that Tom shot over his career 
And, and so Tom might have been, Tom is no longer with us. He's now passed away, but Tom might've been the most naturally gifted photographer that I've ever met mm -hmm. and an unsung hero of photography. And so after that experience, I invited Tom to be our you know presenter at, uh, at Aurora photos during our annual meeting. And it was, it was maybe one of like the, the greatest honors of my life to stand in front of my peers and introduce a, yeah. a, an unsung hero of our industry in, in front of a group of some of the most accomplished photographers that I know. Well, thank you for sharing him with us. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah, my and pleasure. Thank you for joining me in Altadena and, and uh, really enjoyed the book and I really enjoyed speaking with you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Corey for sharing his time and story. Find out more about him and his work by visiting CoreyRich.com. And you can find his book, Stories Behind the Images, wherever books are sold. But please consider using our Amazon affiliate link as it helps to support the show. I have two upcoming workshops, the first in Los Angeles later this month at the Los Angeles Center of Photography and in Tokyo, Japan in December. You can find out more by visiting nobechicreatives.com for my workshop in Tokyo and lacphoto.org for my workshop in LA. You can also support the show by writing a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And even better, if you really enjoy an episode, spread the word via an email to a friend, a post on your social networks, or word of mouth. It makes all the difference. Also, check out our YouTube channel where I offer comments on photography submitted by TCF listeners who contribute to the Candid Frame Flickr poll. Check out the TCF Flickr poll and our YouTube channel by clicking on the links in the show notes and the website. My most recent book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is available. You can purchase it today and receive 40% off the list price when you order it from the Rocky Nook website. Use the promo code PARELLO40 at checkout to take advantage of the discount. And receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks by signing up for the Candid Frame mailing list, where I share thoughts about life, photography, and keep you updated on TCF events. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or donating through PayPal. Not all episodes may be available on your podcaster app of choice. So to download, listen, and share any and all episodes of The Candid Frame, download the TCF app for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your support, it's free. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.